Welcome back to a Matter of Life and Film podcast. I'm Emilia Rolovich and I'm back with Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian. Good to be talking again. It's a big day. The Oscar nominations were announced. So, of course, everyone's run to Twitter with their opinions and we've run to our podcasting studio to talk about it. Are there any big surprises yes. in there for you yes. or something that you thought, oh, why is that not there? Well, there are some very notable I mean, I know everybody now talks about snubs. Snubs is the absolute lingua franca for talking about prize nominations nowadays. When I first started in this job, journalists and critics would all say, oh, my God, I'm so pleased for, and then whoever it is, I'm so pleased for Tom, uh, as if they know Tom. Of course, they don't. It's something rather tragic. Uh, And that used to be the way in which entertainment journalists and critics would talk about it. Now, snubs are what we're all obsessed with. We're obsessed with snubs. So let me talk about the snubs. The snubs are Greta Gerwig has been excluded from the Best Director category. And perhaps most hurtfully of all for the film's fans and adherents, for the partisans of Barbie, Margot Robbie has been shut out of the Best Actress list entirely in favour of Annette Bening for Nyad, Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon, Sandra Huller for Anatomy of a Fall, Kerry Mulligan for Maestro, and Emma Tom- Emma Emma Thompson Emma Stone Emma Thompson would be interesting Emma Stone <laughs> for Four Things, and I think that's a kind of straw in the wind. Really, Barbie has eight nominations. It's still a very respectable tally, but there's no doubt about it. The Oscars, like the whole awards think kind of group think consensus, has decided that Oppenheimer is the serious hefty, heavyweight, blue chip title of this award season with 13 nominations. And it may well be that Christopher Nolan will get his first ever Oscar for directing Oppenheimer. Now, I think Oppenheimer is great. It's a very, very impressive, visionary, passionate and serious piece of work. But I'm always a little bit depressed, if I'm honest with you, in the way in which awards bodies, particularly the Academy Awards, decide that comedy is just not acceptable. It's not respectable. And so they kind of, I think, turned away from Barbie in a way. I mean, it's a voting constituency. So of course, you can't complain about it in that way. It's Mm. not like a kind of cabal of people making a decision or, or a jury. But I was a little bit restive about it in the way that the, the kind of hive mind of Los Angeles seems to have made its mind up now that whatever happens on the night, it would be very unusual if Oppenheimer didn't turn out to be the big winner on the night. Now, that's not to say that there can't be surprises because I've got a sort of fairly shrewd feeling that there might be surprises. Um, I think that although Christopher Nolan is very likely indeed to get the Best Director Prize, the Best Film Award for Oppenheimer isn't exactly a lock. Because what could happen, you see, you've got a lineup of 10 films, which, I mean, I'm old mm-hmm. enough to remember when it was only about four or five films in this category. It left each film less vulnerable to a kind of vote-splitting kind of democratic imbroglio, whereby each individual film has its partisans and they split each other's vote. They split each other's constituency and another film sort of jinks through the middle. Now, it could well be that the voting fans of Barbie and Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon and the the Holdovers and all these films, they will kind of effectively diminish each other's voting block. And another more 
kind of fancied film will jink through the middle, like the zone of interest or past lives. That, I think I'm right in saying, is pretty well what happened when Bong Joon-ho's Parasite won, is that it actually didn't have the same number of uh, nominations as its opponents, as its rivals, and yet they kind of cut each other out of the action, and it turned out that Parasite was the winner. So I wonder if something like the zone of interest or more probably maybe past lives might actually cause a huge upset on the night and past lives might win best picture. If it does, I will be jumping up and down with happiness because I think past lives is an absolute masterpiece. I love past lives. So maybe this is just wishful thinking on my part for anybody who hasn't seen it yet. It's this amazing Korean film by the Korean Canadian dramatist Celine Song about a childhood sweetheart friendship, which is rekindled in adult life. It's an absolute heartbreaker of a film. It's, it's marvelously active and it's a real connoisseur film. I think it could actually cause a real upset. I don't know about you. Yeah, it got me thinking because obviously there are the obvious films you've got in the best film category. You've got Oppenheimer, you've got I guess Maestro and Poor Things, people would probably expect that. I thought The Zone of Interest was was really incredible. For people who haven't seen it, it's basically the family of a Nazi commandant who lives in a house and next to the Auschwitz camp. And it's a very unsettling perspective because I guess you're in the house and, you know, he's a Nazi commandant. But it really keeps you emotionally detached from the characters and has this voyeuristic sense with the camera just sort of almost hidden. And there's hardly any close-ups of these characters, which is right, I think, if you're going to have that quite controversial... I mean, not quite point of view even, because you're more just watching these people making a cushy home for themselves when Auschwitz is literally right on the other side. And then I did wonder, because Zone of Interest, it is in quite a few categories, and it's also in the Best International Film category, if they're voting. And if people put that first, would they feel compelled to also put it as Best Picture? I mean, I'm not sure. But yeah, I think the whole debate of what's a satisfying Oscars result, is it something that's sort of solid, like Oppenheimer, it would be understandable, or is it more a surprise out of left field thing like a past lives or a zone of interest and i agree i think zone of interest or perhaps american fiction or like is that would that be unexpected it's his first feature film isn't it by the director yeah Claude I, jefferson i think that could be interesting that's a really interesting contender and it has kind of caught everybody by surprise i really enjoyed it i actually went away and read the original novel that it's based on Purcell everett's erasure And American fiction actually sets itself a very difficult adapting task. Again, for those who don't know anything about the movie yet, it stars Jeffrey Wright as a rather prickly, lonely, slightly embittered literature lecturer at a university who is deeply annoyed in the way in which African-American writing, African-American experience is being ghettoized by the white cultural gatekeepers who privilege these absurd ghetto novels. And he is deeply annoyed at ghetto novels with what he sees as illiterate patois and ebonics and all the rest of it. And in a spirit of satire, uh, in, a, in a spirit of complaint, he writes a spoof or hoax novel called My Pathology in this meme as a way of complaining about the way that the white cultural overlords have literally ghettoized black writing in the ghetto. And of course, well, you can guess what happens next. It's uh, Certainly, if you're a fan of the producers, you can guess what happens next to his 
absurdly ridiculous novel. The really interesting thing about the novel, the original novel by Percival Everett, is that this spoof or hoax novel is reprinted in its entirety in the book's midsection. You have to read the entire fake novel. And what's so great about it is that you can see that, of course, it's absurd uh, and extreme and cliched and ridiculous, but it is, in fact, also a real page turner and very good. So that left Cord Jefferson, I think, with a slightly French lieutenant's woman-y kind of metafictional challenge, which he kind of doesn't really engage with. But what he does is do it pretty straight. He actually creates a pretty straight fictional narrative version without the meta level. And what he's got to show for it is a really entertaining film with a cracking performance from Jeffrey Wright. And also a very good one from Sterling K. Brown as his brother, who, I mean, I wasn't really aware of Sterling K. Brown very much before this, but Sterling Brown's performance, he plays this guy who's a bit of a screw up. He's a bit of a drinker. He's kind of messed his life up. He's a cosmetic surgeon who has only just come out of the closet and he's lost his job. And what's really interesting about his performance is it's very physical in that his body is on display almost all the time. His torso, his magnificently sculpted and ripped torso is on display so much of the film, and yet it's not sexualized or fetishized in any way. It's interestingly vulnerable. So for so many reasons, I really liked American fiction. I think it'll be an also-ran, to be honest with you, rightly or wrongly, I think it'll be an also-ran. I can't see it really delivering the kind of X-factor je ne sais quoi, which is required to be a, a real contender. But Sterling Brown might, he might be the best supporting actor. But to do that, he would have to defeat Robert Downey Jr., who plays Louis Strauss in Oppenheimer. Mm. And everybody seems to think that Robert Downey Jr. has got it nailed down, which is the thing of this year's award season that I just don't get. And I'm a bit of a Robert Downey Jr. fan. I like Robert Downey Jr. as much as the next person. But I think his performance in Oppenheimer really isn't anything to write home about. I think he is literally outclassed by every single other contender on this list. He's not as good as Sterling K. Brown. He's not as good as Robert De Niro as the sinister farmsteader in Killers of the Flower Moon. He's also not as good as Mark Ruffalo in Poor Things. Again, Poor Things is a very interesting case in point. Mark Ruffalo plays really against type. I mean, it's very unusual what he does because it's a very British performance because he plays a British cad. He has this sort of mustachioed, florid face and he has a straw boater and, and he's this absolute cad who seduces Emma Stone's Bella Baxter figure. Uh, and I thought he was absolutely hilarious. But I think Robert Downey Jr. is going to get it. Yeah, I suppose Robert Downey Jr. And I guess Oppenheimer as a whole, it's seen as like, this is a very serious movie. You know, it's about an important yeah. American figure. It's got black and white in colour in it. It is. <laughs> so, it you know, it's very serious when exactly. it's, you know, <laughs> when it's during the security it hearing be, and it's it in black and white. That's when you know it's getting serious. Yeah. For a film to be in black and white and colour is the absolute stamp of something that's supposed to be very, very important and good. I should also say that applies to Poor Things. Poor Things is also in black and white and colour, and that's supposed to be very good. And, and it's very, very good. That's very true. That is, you've, you've absolutely... And they're all the best, is it, right. best cinematography. Yeah. 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 Right. Three films for, that have for, black and white. Uh, and... For colour, black and white cinematography. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. And then, of course, El Condi, which is in Best Cinematography. That was interesting. That's a bit of a wild card, because I don't think El Condi, yeah. which is a Chilean film about like vampires and power yeah. and 
Eternal Life, and it's like a black exactly. comedy and, and a satire, and I really enjoyed it. That's in cinematography, and I was it like, is. wow. It's- Actually, I think the cinematography category is very strong this year. Even Poor Things, which I didn't completely get behind and like, I have to acknowledge it did look beautiful and it did look amazing. And yeah. could Poor Things be a bit of a wild card in that it could be the best film? Like, could it win best film? Because, yeah, it's sort of serious and it's sort of funny. Yeah, it's serious, it's funny, but I think in the end the Academy will respond to it in the same way they responded to Yorgos Lanthimos. I mean, Yorgos Lanthimos has got, very cunningly, he's found the sweet spot with the awards process, which is he provides something very bizarre, but something that people can also understand. And also they can slightly congratulate themselves on how classy and discerning Mm. they are in distinguishing a kind of European-style art house movie. But what that means is, in awards terms, is that it's the leading lady, like Olivia Colman in The Favourite, it's the leading lady who will be praised for her absolutely toweringly bizarre and mannered performance. And that is what I think is going to happen with Emma Stone. I think it's what should happen with Emma Stone. But Emma Stone, interestingly, is up against people who the smart money say could win, could defeat her. Yeah, she won the Golden Globe. Yeah. It's a bloody good... I mean, I have a question. So, best actress, so Margot Robbie isn't in the running. And I saw Annette Benning in yeah. Nyad. And maybe I'm living under a rock. I've sometimes quite liked that idea, you know. But I feel like I'm familiar with most of these films here. But Nyad, I just haven't heard of. And I'll put no. my hands up and I'll say I haven't watched no. it and I don't know what it is. And it, is it um, an amazing film? And I just don't know. I'm not sure. It's a real crowd pleaser. I've got to say, first of all, I didn't know about the real life person that it was based on. Diane Nyad is this amazing woman. She's an endurance swimmer. She can swim, you know, three times the length of the English Channel without thinking about it. And then when she was 60 years old, after she'd long ago retired and became a journalist, she decided, I am going to swim from Cuba to Florida, which is however long it is. It's four or five times the length of the, the English Channel, and you've got to face sharks and jellyfish, and it's the most terrifying thing. And she just became obsessed with doing it. And it is a classic underdog dedication, follow your dream type of film. Um, it's not it's, it's not quite my kind of thing, but I have to admit, Annette Benning is superbly cast. She has great chemistry with her ex-lover and friend, uh, who is also her coach, played by Jodie Foster. She's bound to pick up a lot of goodwill. She's very good in it. She's very good. I have to say there's a little bit of schmaltz in that kind of movie, and I've never quite got behind it, but it's an amazing true story. And Annette Benning, absolutely, I can't think of anybody else who could have done it, really. She absolutely nails it in terms of the cantankerous, difficult, impossible and exasperating character that she plays She commands their respect while infuriating them. And everybody sort of hates her and loves her at the same time. It's a feel-good story. Nyad, in a way, is the most American, the most approachable and unassuming of the whole list. And because you've got Killers of the Flower Moon, Lily Gladstone in there. Again, a really interesting performance, a very calm, quiet, almost zen performance from Lily Gladstone playing the Native American woman who is at the center of a white racist conspiracy, a murderous conspiracy to defraud her entire people of their 
oil entitlements at the beginning of the 20th century. That's a really interesting, very calm, as I say, almost super subtle performance from her. Sandra Huller, a fantastic kind of European, stringently intelligent performance, a, real, a very theatrical performance. Kerry Mulligan in Maestro playing Leonard Bernstein's humiliated wife. Very, very good. Again, Kerry Mulligan Great. is very yeah. good. It's a very English performance. And then, of course, you've got Emma Stone in Poor Things. All these performances are at the centre of very highly wrought pieces of self-consciously prestigious movies, whereas Nyad, in a way, could almost be a TV movie. And I don't mean that as a diss. I don't mean that as a put-down. It's got a, a very, down very to approachable earth quality, piece. would you say? Yeah, yeah. very down-to-earth. Mm. Yeah. yeah, very down-to-earth. And everybody can get behind it. Everybody can understand it. I'm not sure I would bet against Annette Benning winning because she's got a lot of, well, this awful word, which is the sort of tyrannical word which has its boot on everyone's neck, relatability. She's very relatable. Uh, and, uh, you know, I resent the idea of relatable. I like the idea of being very touched or moved or excited by a character who isn't very nice. Whereas Diane Nyad, who I suppose you could say that she isn't very nice either, but everything about her you can understand because there, there is a kind of bumper sticker morality at the end of it all, which is follow your dream, never give up, and you will win in the end. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not in the real well, world. Well, if it only life were that simple. Her. Yeah, you know. That, if yeah. only it were. <laughs> yeah. No, I think there's a lot of, as you say, maybe Euro style, quite like experimental looking films, which is... You know, I mean, it's been a strong yeah. year. And I don't say that in a in a bad way, like, oh, these films are, you know. And that makes it difficult. And that got me thinking about Maestro. And I thought, if it was any other year, I think yeah. Maestro might be a sort of Oscar bait kind of front runner. And yeah. Maestro oh, seems to be quite divisive. Yeah. I think yeah. Bradley Cooper seems to be in it and directing it like this is his Citizen Kane. But I kind of leaned into it. I yeah. realised early on in the film, I had to make a decision. I was like, I can either just decide to hate this film because it's so ostentatious and Bradley Cooper is really trying to be over no, the I top agree. with his performance and stuff. I but then I thought but maybe, just maybe, if you're doing a biopic on Leonard Bernstein, should it be quite ostentatious? And why can't it look, look like a really glossy, yeah, over-the-top film for this great American conductor? I understand why people might twice. hate it, but I leaned into it. And I liked it. I liked it a lot the first time, but I really admired it. It was. It's very serious. It takes the music very seriously. There are a lot of people who don't like it. The thing is, and I think this incidentally is, to, is also true for another film, which I like, I'm the only person in the world who likes it, is Napoleon. Ridley Scott's Napoleon starring Joaquin Phoenix, I think should have got a nomination. Ah. I think he should have got a nomination. If you make a film like Maestro, like Napoleon, about something that a lot of people in the journalistic business already have an opinion on, then they are going to get very proprietorial, I suspect, and very kind of grumpy about a film which they may not agree with, or they think that this is somehow superseding their own freehold on the whole subject, particularly in the world of the arts. Maybe Oppenheimer didn't have this effect because all of us arty journalists didn't have an opinion about a famous nuclear physicist. But a lot of us have an opinion about Napoleon, and a lot of people have an opinion about Leonard Bernstein, and a lot of bit certainly about Bernstein, some about music. So Maestro is divisive, particularly with people who feel that, well, it has very successfully or very judiciously represented Bernstein's achievements in music. And a lot of people who think, no, this is a, a ridiculous cheapening, a shallow caricature of his life and work. I really admired the artistry of Maestro. I really admired the way it created 
the externality of Bernstein, his reputation, and how that is a sphinx in a way. He's very inscrutable, and we don't really, for all that Bradley Cooper is, is a brilliant theatrical actor and is very good at representing how charming and fluent and seductive Bernstein was, but his film is also very good at showing us the fact that so much of his personality is withheld from the audience and is a kind of forbidding Mandarin riddle and mystery. And I thought that he he handled both of those things very well indeed. It's a very good film, but but it is the big, serious person film, Leonard Bernstein versus Oppenheimer. Maybe there's no room in this town for two people like that in awards season, I think. Perhaps, but I think Maestro did have fun with itself, which perhaps is that not allowed in an Oscar for Best Picture film? But, but then again, everything everywhere all at once. And, you know, there's been films which have been kind of like, oh, that's not what we were expecting. Yeah. I'm not really yeah. sure. But I yeah. guess because Oppenheimer's in so many categories, it's like, well, if it's not going to be Best Picture, it could be Best Director. There's 10 films. If you could remove one of the nominations from the Best Picture category, what would you take out? Well, I've got to be honest, I, there's nothing here I would want to remove. I like all of these mm. films. I really like all of these films. I would probably want to add films, but then that's the difficulty, is if you add something, you have to say what you would kick out. I don't want to be a bore on this subject, but I think I would add Napoleon. I think Napoleon is a terrific movie. It's historically inaccurate, but then that's something it shares with almost all of Shakespeare's history plays. So I'm going to put Napoleon on there, and I would probably, and this makes me sound like a bit of a misogynist, kick out Barbie because I liked a lot oh. about Barbie, but I thought the whole third act kind of disappeared. But there are wonderful things about Barbie. The cinematography and the production design of Barbie are, are amazing. There's another film which I'm not sure is eligible, is Tina Satter's film Reality with Sidney Sweeney. Again, people have never heard of this film, but... They have heard of Sidney Sweeney, who was in The White Lotus and Euphoria, I think. And uh, she, she's such a good actor. It was a really, really good film. It was a, a verbatim cinema-style film about a whistleblower, a kind of an Edward Snowden figure who was arrested by the FBI. And the movie is a dramatisation of exactly what happened because the FBI released the transcript from their body cam kind of audio recorders of what happened when they arrested her and released it in dialogue form. And Tina Satter simply made a movie based on that, using the exact dialogue. And it is a fascinating movie. Again, it's maybe it's just too weird and people don't like it. The other film I would really go for is The Eight Mountains. It's an Italian movie, which was in Cannes last year. It's by Felix van Groningen and Charlotte Vandermeersch. It's about a troubled, a rather sad male friendship, which goes sour. The two men who have been friends since boyhood and their friendship kind of goes sour. So they rebuild their friendship by building a hut together in the mountains. And it's great. It's so touching and moving. I think it's wonderful. It's one of those, one of those films that if you've seen it, then you know what I'm talking about, but I, it needs a lot of evangelism. I think I've been evangelical, evangelical enough, but. Oh, that's interesting. So you, you take out Barbie, very, celebratory film for women everywhere and you'd put in napoleon very more no. macho stuff thrown in there i know uh, i know that's, i mean I know how you know, it was almost a trap question i know barbie the direction of it was great it looked great and I, I was surprised it didn't get best director i know there's less nominations for best director five rather than ten but 
I think the yeah. only woman who was nominated for Best Director is Justin Trier for Anatomy of a Fool, which is great. Yeah. It's a great film. But but I wonder yeah. if there's a certain thing of, you know, we've got one woman in there. We want four serious man films and like Barbie that's maybe seen as a bit frivolous. and But the direction of it, the technical aspects and everything, like it was a really well-directed film. So, I mean, if you're not going to go for it in other categories I think it's kind of strange and with Anatomy of a Fool it is well directed but it's the courtroom drama and this might be controversial but with a courtroom drama and the way it's filmed you can in a way only do so much I'm not saying it could have done more but I think with Barbie there was so much imagination in the directing of it I'm kind of surprised Mm. I I mean I think they could both be in there but you know is it that a woman I'm, I'm, can only I'm have a film in there if it's I'm, like a serious one? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I would also say that it's surprising to me that Sofia Coppola didn't get anything. Really, people just... For Priscilla. I, I don't know what happened there. I don't know what happened. I mean, Priscilla was a really good movie, really interesting performance. I don't know what happened. It just didn't get any traction with Academy voters, which is a great shame. A great shame for me because Sofia Coppola is a really interesting director. I would have been very interested to see her in the best director list. That would have been that would have been no, fascinating. Same. But uh, I think you know, it's a tough list because yeah, I feel like it was a really strong year for female directors. But as you say, but Sofia Coppola basically snubbed. I know Saltburn's quite divisive, but it was no, a beautifully so. made film. Yeah. Saltburn didn't get a look in by Emerald Fennell. Yeah, yeah, I love talking about Saltburn rather than I liked actually watching it, really. There's genius mm. in it. There's genius in Emerald Fennel because she's got under so many people's skin with this movie. Uh, and the fact that she has done that mm. and the fact that some of the people on social media have been attacking her so boorishly and so clumsily makes me want to really defend her because I think she is a very smart person. I'm not a huge fan of her film. I think it is very shallow. Uh, although Rosamund Pike is really good in it, she probably deserves an Oscar nomination herself. She had a BAFTA nomination, which she definitely deserved. I was hoping that she might get a, an Oscar nomination as well because her performance yeah, is same. just so good in it. I can't think of the best supporting actress. Well, I've got to say, I'm as big a fan of Emily Blunt as anybody else, but I'm sort of surprised that Emily Blunt apparently is allowed to have a best supporting actress nomination for a performance which. It's not that interesting. You know, there would have been... I mean, it's no good, Devil Wears Prada. Yeah. No, exactly. It's not like it's not as good as that. It's not as good as My Summer of Love. But Rosamund Pike, I think, deserved it there. And I think if anything... I thought Saltman deserves a special prize for getting people talking, for the kind of dinner party chatterati prize yeah. for just talking about talking about a movie, getting people talking about films. I, I'm a huge fan of that. I think anybody who does that and behaves as if films are important I think is a good thing. I really liked it. I mean, aside from, obviously, there's a whole discussion about class. And that, then it was quite interesting. Some people are like, oh, you know, but the upper class, they aren't really like that and like blah, blah, blah. And, and it's like, well, you know, they are being caricatured. And does it matter that people who are really rich need to appear in a really holistic way? To be fair to Saltburn, the satire of the ruling classes, I mean, there are plenty of people that think that it, it isn't really satirising the ruling classes. It's sort of sucking up to them while pretending to satirise them. And I kind of get that, but I don't think it's entirely fair. I think its satire of the overclass is a good deal more interesting than in a film like The Triangle of Sadness, which was a, a winner at Cannes, which I thought was a very crass and boring film. Whereas at least Saltman did have moments of wit and fun. 
And for those reasons, sad to see Emerald Fennell's film getting ignored by the Academy today. I think it would have been a very good thing for the Academy, as well as everybody else, to put Rosamund Pike in there. That would have been great. I always like to talk is about Tom Cruise. <laughs> he is. Um, because of well, we Scientology? Because of, mission, <laughs> very possibly, the Scientology conspiracy. No, Mission Impossible has got two nominations. Isn't that marvellous? Oh, sorry, I completely I, forgot about that. But, you know, yeah, we, we well, go ahead. That. I haven't um, seen it, but... Right. I am quite amused and quite heartened by the fact that Tom Cruise, who is sort of a ledge, and I always like to see him do well. His film, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1, has got two Oscar nominations. It's got one for, I think, sound and also visual effects. And that's a film, a real box office, crowd-pleasing, unpretentious movie, which I thought was terrific. I absolutely loved it. But the public rightly or wrongly, and certainly some of the pundit classes thought, oh, we're a bit bored with Tom Cruise now, we're a bit bored with Mission Impossible. I'm actually, weirdly, despite the fact that this is the umpteenth Mission Impossible film, I'm actually less bored with it now than I was sort of years ago. The Mission Impossible franchise has never been nominated for an Oscar. So this is the first time for Tom Cruise. And who knows, it might win something. Again, I think it's an outside chance because nobody's going to give a Tom Cruise film and Oscar, I suspect. But again, I think I've sort of been round the houses with Tom Cruise as to what I think about him. He's certainly an amazing Anglophile. I mean, nobody is more committed to British cinema production than Tom Cruise. He battled so heroically through the lockdown that I just have an affection for him. I think he deserves, incidentally, to go back to the BAFTAs, I think he deserves a BAFTA fellowship that is to say, the BAFTA equivalent of an honorary or lifetime achievement BAFTA. He's probably still too young to get a lifetime achievement Oscar. He's still only 60 or 61 or whatever he is. So he's still a boy, really. He certainly still looks like a boy. I think we could give him an honorary CBE. I, I think that would be quite fun. All right. So, yeah, we started at Oscars. We've ended up at Tom Cruise. Give him a CBE. <laughs> give him something. I mean, oh, right. maybe... Mission yes. Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1 will win Best Sound, but there is Maestro yeah, Oppenheimer it might, it might and Persona of Interest, might. so it could get it overshadowed yeah, by Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer it's a giant explosion of... I mean, mm. yeah, I mean, for God's sake, it's up against Maestro. So how is Tom Cruise's Big Bangs going to I match, know. you know, the uh, Leonard Bernstein live from Ely Cathedral? I don't think it's going to happen, but I, I think well, the explosion it would of the atomic bomb. Yes, exactly. Killian Murphy's Big Bang is bigger. Mm. I don't know if we've talked about Best Actor yet. Obviously, oh, right. okay. Killian Murphy's no, in the running. I'm hoping for yes, Paul I... Giamatti, The Holdovers, because I think that would be really satisfying. That but... would be very satisfying. I love Paul Giamatti. He is, he's one of these people, he doesn't look any different. When he was in Alexander Payne's Sideways, I realised to my horror that that was... 20 years ago. And yet, when you look at it, when you look at stills from it, he just looks the same. He's one of these guys, because he was sort of born old in a way, his face looks so hilariously and lovably kind of lived in that he's spared looking older as the years go by. So he's just forever in that in that zone, which is amazing. Forever old. Uh, it means you can always cast him. He's forever old. Or well, not old, I suppose, forever middle-aged. I think it's a lovely performance. It's vulnerable. Oh, yeah. It's sad. 
It's got that kind of prickly, grumpy, sort of deeply sensitive tone that he can do so well. The, the movie itself, again, I think it's, it's a real soft-hearted film. It's not as tough and as uncompromising yeah. as some of Payne's other films. It doesn't punch as hard or as ruthlessly as a film like Election or about Schmidt or Sideways. So Paul Giamatti is this teacher who, the holdovers, in case anyone hasn't seen it, it's about these kids at a boarding school, I guess, who can't go home during Christmas yeah. for various reasons. And then Paul Giamatti is a teacher who has to look after them. And he develops a kind of bond with one of the kids. Right. Um, and I thought it was really well done. I thought it could have gone way soppier and overly sentimental. But I thought... Even at the end, Paul Giamatti, he's driving and he just spits some whiskey out onto the ground. And it's like these characters have been through something and they're closer, but they haven't become like really soft, kind, overly kind-hearted people. I think it yeah. was, yeah, so maybe I disagree, but I thought it, it maintained a kind of hardness about it. It wasn't completely yeah, flopping around and trying to make us exactly cry. It, or, it you maintained know. exactly so. what it's about to maintain. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't start tough and then suddenly go gooey. But then again, it didn't, or start gooey and suddenly go tough, started out as very shrewd and worldly, witty, essentially emollient. It kept that tone very well. The screenplay by a writer who I didn't know, David Hemmingson, who is a TV writer. I've got to admit, I knew nothing of his work until then. I think this is his first feature script. And it's autobiographical, apparently, based on his own experiences at, at boarding school. I thought was a bit of a masterclass, really, in plot transitions in incremental indirect character revelations all those things that would be screenwriters get taught in screenplay seminars this film embodied all those things but did it so easily and naturally and charmingly that it absolutely won my heart it really did i think did it get nominated for best picture as well sorry there's like 10 so i keep sort of some of them fall out best of my picture, brain yes, yeah it's it nominated did. for best picture uh, as well yes. things where it might Two actor, two acting nods where it win the, might well win them both. Paul Giamatti and Divine Joy Randolph. She, you know, they might win it together. So yeah, it might be a huge great. win for them. Yeah, I guess we'll see. And then best documentary. I felt like I'd watch some really interesting documentaries in 2023, but none of them actually made the nomination. So that's a bit useless for me to say, but... I don't know if you saw Beyond what? Utopia it's about so North Korea. Yes, that's an amazing film. The North Korean thing I thought was great. Uh, so that's a shame that didn't get in there. 20 Days in Mariupol, though, that's an amazing film. And I'm delighted that 20 Days in Mariupol got in there because that's a rather extraordinary film that began by, by Mitislav Chernov, which began as really just footage that he'd amassed for TV work, for filing for CNN and Channel 4 News. And he kind of stitched together the outtakes that nobody would use on TV and created this absolutely stunning, searing drama. It's, it's amazing. And I like Four Daughters, which I'd seen in Cannes. That was a really interesting, again, a slightly metafictional drama. But the others, I, I've got to say, I still have to catch up with them. Yeah. Then also what I thought would be nominated for documentary was still a Michael J. Fox movie, which explores i thought it was really well oh, done i yes. thought it looked amazing the archival footage they use of michael j fox in all his films obviously he was in you know back to the future about his struggle with parkinson's right. which apparently he and i really had no idea yes. he started having symptoms of parkinson's when he was 29 which sounds crazy but i thought that was amazing i thought 
surely this is like a you know an oscar winning film like i'm sure it'll make it and actually it's not there so i already know what happened there maybe people just i don't know what happened there you're right if if anything i don't know anything was machine tooled for an oscar nomination it was the michael j fox documentary and i'm sure he might very well be disappointed not to be in there but i don't know Hmm. i don't know if you know the whole history of the oscars but you probably have more on your memories than i do has a documentary Mm. ever been nominated for a best picture or is it always very separate well my memory is that michael moore's anti-iraq war documentary um fahrenheit 911 my memory is that that won or was nominated for best film it won the palm door at Cannes. it was certainly a huge contender i guess it was just thought i had but you know i guess that's the oscars obviously there are different categories and then i guess on the other side of that if you didn't have a best documentary category would it be that documentary films just wouldn't get enough recognition and then it's a bit like some people ask why is there best actress and best actor should it not just be because they all do the same job but then would that yeah is there a chance that men would just win that and then women wouldn't get the award you know so i guess it's always a Uh, double-edged thing you know it's a hugely good A few years ago, it was, rightly or wrongly, I mean, it's no longer the hot-button issue that it was. The Berlin Film Festival abolished the gender distinction in acting prizes and just made it the acting prize. I think they mm. created maybe two of them, but if the unofficial understanding is that one's going to go to a man and one's going to go to a woman, then you're back where you started. Of course, that is the, that's the traditional objection to these things, is that men will crowd them out. Men will have these great big sort of macho, serious roles like J. Robert Oppenheimer and women will be crowded out. I don't know if it's like that. That is the reason. But people say, how absurd. You don't have best female editor and best male editor or even best male or even... Maybe we should. I don't know. Yeah, because people are always complaining that women are being shut out of the directing category. So it's a tricky one and Mm. I have no pat answer to it, really. There's no doubt about it. The gender split in the acting awards has created a space for female talent that might not otherwise exist possibly yeah i suppose do you have any strong feelings on best makeup and hairstyling not really no although the best makeup and hairstyling again that's a poor things special god help us golda gets in there golda that terrible film with helen mirren as golda Meir, which i just thought was boring and silly I'm, i'm not sure i know about it did it have anything special in regards to makeup and hairstyling? Or? Well, only in the sense that Helen Mirren had to have very heavy prosthetic makeup to play Golda Meir. But, I mean, yeah, yes, I'm, technically that was great. I mean, I'm just being cantankerous mm. about that film. No, that's fine. Well, again, Barbie's Barbie, not in a best Barbie? makeup and hairstyling, which is... No, that's outrageous. I mean, you know, God help us, that is... But then Oppenheimer is, because I suppose in Oppenheimer they had yeah. to make him look a bit older for one scene, Killian Murphy. Like at the end, yeah. he's got oh, the award and he's with Emily Blunt and they, are, they have some wrinkles there in there. Obvious, I don't know. But the fact that in not in cinematography, Rod, Rodrigo Prieto was the, the amazing cinematographer on Barbie and it was great. So he really <laughs> he deserved yeah. that, really. And, I mean, the scene, that sequence where they go from, as it were, Barbie land to the real world, they go across mm. from left to right across the screen through these various scenes. And you realise that's not just a kind of AI digital construct. Those are real physical scenes that have been built in the studio for each one of those. They are mind-blowing. There's something seriously beautiful 
about that scene. I'm kind of talking myself into saying that Barbie's really good at <laughs> but there is something really amazing. And I mean, production design, I think, did they get something from production design? Oh yeah, Barbie, yeah, they got production design. Yes. Production design. Also Napoleon, poor things. Yeah, Oppenheimer. Yeah. Interestingly, back to hair and makeup, Society of the Snow. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Society of the Snow, if people haven't seen it, it's about the quite famous plane crash in the Andes. Yeah, where they had to survive by cannibalism. That is to say, they had to eat the dead bodies of the people who had been killed in the crash. And it was something I remember because the author, Piers Paul Reed kind of made it famous with his own rather brilliant reportage book called Alive, uh, which he, he wrote with mm. enormous speed. I mean, he managed to get that out only about a year after the, the crash had happened. And that too has been made into a film. But I really liked Society of the Snow. I thought it was a very serious film. I really was gripped by the terrible... I, I didn't really realise before what it was like. It was not simply that it was horrible having to eat a human body. Of course it is. The mm, People the, the that terrible, you know. Yeah, the terrible dilemma is you're thinking, I'm dying here. I've got to eat this dead body. But you're thinking, Goddy, at any moment, we're going to be rescued. And I'm going to look like such an asshole if I start gobbling a dead body and the sort of UN or the Red Cross come storming through the door and say, forget it, guys, you're saved. And you think... I want to be one of the people that held out because there are some people holding out for a rescue. And you're thinking, well, maybe what would I be? How long would I hold out? Especially if I thought that really any moment we're going to be rescued, aren't we? You know, because they surely aren't just going to leave us here. So that was part of why it was so horrible. I mean, that doesn't really impact on makeup and hairstyling, but it certainly brought that movie, really brought it home to me in a way that yeah, the, I'm, I'm uh, glad it's previous, in the running or something. So that, yeah, I guess because of the 1970s sideburns and moustaches, I guess, you know, that's what it's... It's interesting about when you mentioned them, you know, praying to be rescued, and then they get the radio to work. They use parts of the crash plane or something from the radio, and then they actually hear they have been searched for and the search has been called off, and they're listening to this, and they're obviously like, oh, my God, they're never going to find us, you know? Yeah, yeah. Possibly, I mean, if I heard that, I'd be like, okay, time to start carving up some, you know, human flesh, I think. Yeah, exactly. It's time to start chomping on the dead bodies. That's what I would be doing. (laughs) It's an awful thing. It's an awful thing to think, but yes. I would have zero restraint. Do you think Killers of the Flower Moon, like it's not as ostentatious looking as some of the films? I think it is serious, but you almost feel like it's sort of almost head to head with uh, Oppenheimer and that, like they're both about important American history. And you sort of wonder, is Oppenheimer going to eclipse it in a way? Like it almost feels like, I I know there's Barbenheimer, but then I think Scorsese, Nolan face off in a way. Yeah, I think people can grasp what Oppenheimer is about much more quickly, the elevator pitch for Oppenheimer is much easier than for Killers of the Flower Moon. You have to spend quite a lot of time explaining Mm. to people. If you've never heard of Killers of the Flower Moon, you don't know anything about it, then, well, you have to listen to somebody explain it to you for about a couple of minutes before you get it. Whereas Oppenheimer, the guy invented the bomb and afterwards he felt guilty about it. Boom, there it is. And it's an amazing film and there are amazing scenes in it. But it's got this central, quite easily graspable concept. Whereas Killers of the Flower Moon, I must have explained to people a thousand times what it's about. And every time I think, oh, okay, let me go back to the beginning. Okay, so uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, Native American people in Oklahoma, they had oil entitlements. And they were sitting 
on huge oil fields, but the white people that let them sit on it didn't know the oil fields were there, so they were infuriated, and there was a conspiracy to Mm. murder them all, to give, you know, it's a fascinating story, it's an amazing story, and David Grant's original book about it is also fascinating, but I think he's, again, slightly, as far as the kind of awards season goes, not the way in which the film will be consumed and ununderstood generally, but in the silly world of awards season, it's slightly harder to punch home what the film is about. So I suspect that is slightly hampering it. Okay, I mean, is that a factor? Then in a way, I sort of think Killers of the Flower Moon does deserve to have that spot as maybe best picture because then people who might not have seen that many of the films, I might think, oh, this is best picture. Okay, maybe I'll sit down and watch it until they realise it's like almost four hours. No, I mean, joking. It's long, but I think it's better than Oppenheimer. It's clearer. The actual narrative of it is sort of clearer because it doesn't flick back and forth. I mean, Oppenheimer flicks back and forth. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But I think the narrative of Killers of the Flower mm. is more persuasive and more involving. Yeah. I don't want to seem like a woke Guardian journalist. But, you know, part of the reason I think it's better is because it represents the experience of the people who are being victimized. The Native American experience is much more clearly and generously represented in Killers of the Flower Moon than the Japanese experience is represented in Oppenheim. I mean, the Japanese experience is completely ignored in Oppenheim. Again, I don't want to come off as this sort of politically correct Guardian journalist, but I, I think that is a bit of a flaw of the film. Yeah, I think because of the Flower Moon challenges you to think about that bit of history a bit differently and to even, you know, acknowledge it at all. But Oppenheimer, it's that very American point of view. Well, Peter, let's close out this discussion. Yeah. I'm curious what, in your recent or long, you know, memory would you say has been the most satisfying oscar best picture winner do you think if you think back i know that's a um bit overwhelming but that is really (laughs) interesting and devastatingly hard question to answer i mean i find myself thinking of Hmm. nominees which should have won but didn't like goodfellas talking of martin scorsese which lost out to dances Hmm. with wolves which is oh god really kind of annoying thing. And I think I'm right in saying that Citizen Kane lost out to How Green Was My Valley. Again, mm. they're, not, they're not bad films by any means, but they're not in that league. Of course, always the embarrassing thing about the Oscars is you realise that in a year's time, all these conversations are going to sound so dated and so absurd. It was a maxim of the late Christopher Hitchens who said, try and have a nourishing conversation about last year's Oscar nominee list. And you can't. It's just it's exhausting. You think, God almighty, these ridiculous films. When you think about films like Ben Affleck's Argo, which was, I think, a best film. I mean, God help us. What possessed them? Don't remember. This I don't remember. Very model. <laughs> well, well, it's not a bad idea for a film, but it's pretty, pretty moderate. So this is what happens is that, I mean, obviously all cultural discussions uh, cont- <laughs> is doomed to obsolescence, but no cultural discussion is more doomed to obsolescence than talking about the Oscars. But that doesn't stop us really enjoying it. And I always really enjoy getting stuck into talking about the Oscars. I don't know, it's because I don't follow sports. This is, you know. This is your Super Bowl. Yeah, exactly. Or World Cup, I guess. Except it should be more international, maybe. Interesting. I was going to say Silence of the Lambs, maybe. I think that one, Best Picture, right? Oh, I guess it's, I love and people say, is it a horror, is it a psychological thriller? But I think it's maybe, is it the closest we've got to a horror best picture, unless I'm... Yeah, the silence of the I might just Google it. ...is interesting because it's not straight horror. It's more like a psychological thriller. And it's a genre movie which almost uniquely managed to get prestigious awards 
praise, which is very unusual for a genre film and quite mm. an extreme genre yeah. film as well. All right. Well, it's been okay. good to chat about the Oscars and what might not happen. So yeah, goodbye and we'll see you for next episode. Um, you can follow us on Instagram and read the show notes for all the info. Thanks. Thank you.